When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Steve Schmidt is the co-founder of The Lincoln Project and served as a political strategist for George Bush and the John McCain presidential campaign. He's advised former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger as well as many CEOs, world leaders, and political movements. In June of 2018, Schmidt tweeted, 29 years and nine months ago, I registered to vote and became a member of the Republican Party, which was founded in 1854 to oppose slavery and stand for the dignity of human life. Today, I renounce my membership in the Republican Party. It is fully the party of Trump, end quote. He joins me on this episode to discuss what led him into politics and how where we are now is drastically different from what inspired his career. We talk about the importance of truth, the consequences of not being able to tell what is real or fake, the media, the business of selling hope, how the Trump administration has disastrously handled this pandemic and cost American lives, and how to have conversations with people you disagree with, and so much more. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am an enormous fan of your work and your perspective, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. So I want to dive into everything that's happening in the world right now. But before we do that, I always like to give listeners context on people's backgrounds, on on where they came from and, and how they came to be the people they are today. So could you tell me where you grew up? I grew up in North Plainfield, New Jersey, which was about 25 miles outside of New York City. Mm. Fun fact, my mom grew up right over the GW in Teaneck. Okay. Absolutely. 
Oh, yeah. And were you always interested in politics as a kid? Were you aware of elections, local elections, things like that? Or, or did that come later? Um, I was always into it. I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, but my mom swears it's true. When I was in first or second grade, got one of the writing assignments, and it's before you can cogently explain anything in writing. And it was basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the teacher said, so you want to be the president? And apparently I said, no, I want to run his campaign. Um, so I, um, you know, very early on, just was always attracted to politics and all of that stuff and um, wound up to go on and make a living doing it. So it's, um, you know, it's been an interesting career. I'm sure. So you were aware of your political ambitions by the first grade. How did that translate? No, I I just I um you know there was just something I always you know that time I I was born in nineteen seventy, so I'm forty-nine. Um you know, the nineteen eighties, the you know, great geopolitical drama that was playing out in the world, the competition between the Soviets and the Americans. Um It was, I look back on it now, um, you know, when you're 10 years old, you're not able to contextualize the place and time you're in. But those years were years for the country, were years of recovery, a renewal of sort. You had had a period of time from 1965 through landing of combat troops in Vietnam, the disaster of the Vietnam War, the assassinations of King and Kennedy the unrest of the late 60s, Watergate, Jimmy Carter, the Iran hostage crisis, which as a kid, that was a, that was a big story. And you couldn't escape you know, what, was, what was going on in that moment in time. It's just something that always was interested in. I was always a, you know, someone who liked reading, liked stories, mm-hmm. likes you know, narratives. And, um, you know, and I've always found the story of the country to be you know, an exceptionally good narrative, just a, a great story. And I've always been transfixed by it, I guess, to some degree. Hmm. So when you were deciding on your college path, how did that shape what you chose to study? What What do you look to learn in school when you know you want to get into politics professionally? Um, I, don't, I was a terrible, terrible college student. I was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I um have very very few memories of attending class and um was there for the fun and the social part of it. A lot of a lot of people who do this, you know, do this work for a living. Um, you know, what we all share in common is we all grew up very middle class. We all went to state universities, and uh the scholars amongst us got two two fours, two fives. You know, we we're just all C students. And I um you know, it's a business where that's intuitive. It's it's commonsensical. Um, trying to understand how other people are able to see the world and have an appreciation that people see the world differently than you do. Mm. What their hopes, what their aspirations are, and you know, every everybody when you think about elections, I mean, people want to be. They want their their kids to be to be safe and well off. They they want to be able to achieve their dreams. And you know, politics is the 
you know, is the way that, you know, we make these decisions in a, mm-hmm. in a democratic society. And I, and I think, you know, the, the, this idea that none of it matters, um, I think is refuted by this period of time. We understand now probably as a country better than we did four years ago that life and death decisions get made in the Oval Office. And mm-hmm. it does matter who sits behind the resolute desk as we, you know, are just in the season of tragedy. But I, you know, but for me, I always like, I always loved it. I loved the competition of it. I knew I didn't want to work in a cubicle. Um, you know, have a, I guess, enough attention deficit disorder <laughs> that, you know, need a, need a, um, you know, need a uh, constant, I guess, a stream of new stimuli and, and stuff coming in and political campaigns help you. I have that. Do you, <laughs> not related to politics, but are you one of those people who walks into a room and goes, wait, why did I come in here? Right, exactly. I do that a couple of times a day. I'm like, there was a point to this. What's going on? (laughs) Um, So I'm curious, when you left college, what was your first job? Well, here's a, here's a, so some people know this story. Um, So years later in the life, I went to University of Delaware. Mm -hmm. And um, when I ran John McCain's campaign, David Pluff ran Senator Obama, it's not President Obama. He also went to the University of Delaware. Mm-hmm. And we were both of us three credits short of our degrees. Um, and we, we both had not passed the same exact math class. And so after the election in 2009, um, sometime in May, we went back to the university. They did a big event. A couple thousand people showed up. And we had a drink in the president of the university's office. And he said, he goes, guys, can I, can I say something to you both? And we were like, yeah, of course, anything. And um, he goes, well, he goes, you know, we're just really, we're really proud of you guys at the university. Um, but uh, he goes, you got you to finish your degrees. He goes, you're fucking killing us. <laughs> 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 and so I, so after running a presidential campaign, both David and I went back to college and um we both finished our degrees. We um, gave the convocation speeches for our respective graduating classes. Um, but I left college without the degree, without the math class, and I literally could have stayed there for the next 40 years, failing it three times a year. Um, but I wound up working for a media consultant in Philadelphia, um, doing the tank campaign commercials. And then I spent the better part of a decade it was an itinerant campaign worker. I had a black Mitsubishi Eclipse. Um, I owned a stereo, which got stolen. I had one pot, one spoon, a duffel bag of clothes, and you know the campaigns would last for a couple months. I lived, remember, in Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, doing this race. I lived in the Daniel Boone Motor Inn between two hookers um, who would work the coal work the coal trucks that were coming in and I'd be going to work in the morning and they'd always be walking back up the hill say good morning ladies and you know (laughs) I lived all over the country and trailers and motels and you know all of that month to month and ultimately you know made it to you know to Washington and on to the to the bigger races and the bigger Mm -hmm. bigger campaigns. So how did you end up working on those big campaigns because you've worked with President George W. Bush, Senator John McCain, as you mentioned, Governor Schwarzenegger, 
Um, you know, you've worked for some larger than life Republican figures. How how do you begin to get in those rooms where it's where it happens? Um, perseverance and endurance, right? I, I I mean, look at the at the end of the day, it's um it's a business where you have to win and you have to overperform expectations. It, it's a small community like anything else. It probably seems impenetrable to outsiders, but like any other profession, it, it has its rhythms and you hmm. find strong mentors and, you know, people ultimately give you the opportunities to, you know, to be in those spaces, to be in those places. And, hmm. um, you know, I've been lucky on that. I, I think it's a, it's a mix of, like anything in life, it's a mix of hard work, um, but also being in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a, luck has a lot to do with a lot of things. When you were rising in the ranks, were there are there moments that stand out to you, you know, a moment that you remember where you spoke up and said something and caught the attention of one of the folks in charge or a suggestion that you made that, that really made people go, Oh, that's Steve guy. We, we should ask him about this the next time. Is, is there stuff that you remember like that? Oh, so I had, um, so there, there was a, well, I, I don't know specifically, you know, per se, but as you, as you're, as you're working in politics and you're, and you're coming up, um, you know, my, my approach has always been to try to tell people, you know, the truth, um, speak truth to power, you know, respectfully, but not try to delude anybody about, you know, what's happening, why it's happening. And, you know, hopefully over a career, you know, middle age now is that you, you develop a reputation, you know, for someone who, you know, someone who can do that. Mm-hmm. Who was the first really big name that you worked for when we talk about President Bush, Senator McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, all, all these people who are, you know, household names. Which which of those guys did you work for first? Bush. And what were you brought in to do? Um, I helped run the communications operation on... Um, the 2004 campaign. And then I went into the white house. Um, there was an assistant to the president and a, uh, and counselor to the vice president. And in my time there, I ran two Supreme court confirmations. I spent time in Iraq, um, mm-hmm. assessing all of the communications in the theater that were coming back to the country. But I had a political role. I was a political advisor to the, to the president, the vice president. I wasn't a policy person. I was a communications person. Now, when you talk about working on confirmations of Supreme Court judges and going to Iraq, that's a broad spectrum of, of right. conversations to be a part of. What did it look like uh, on, on the first topic? What did it look like to select and confirm judges for SCOTUS? Well, I, um, I, um, was on air force two with Cheney and um, I got called up to his cabin and there were two big duffel bags filled with binders. And he said, there hasn't been a Supreme court confirmation since 1994 and you're going to run it. And here are all the candidates in the, in these binders. Um, You can talk to me about it, the president about it or Carl, but take the bags 
go lock yourself away and figure out how to how to do this. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I had two of two of those that did there, and then um, obviously the Iraq War in two thousand and five, which is when I was there, was was not in a good place, and. Um, there was a lot of consternation and frustration in the White House about, you know, the stories weren't being told fairly, that there was good news and um, happening. It wasn't reaching back to the American people. And, you know, I was asked, hey, will you go and assess all of this stuff and, and report back? And I did for a couple months. And it was a, um, you know, it was a, it was a, for me, it was a, it was a really disillusioning experience. And I know when I came back, um, you know, I certainly didn't pull any punches about what I saw, the chaos that I saw, the total dysfunction um, that surrounded everything. And, um, and then in 2006, after I, after I left the, after I left the White House, I wound up in California with Schwarzenegger, which was a, as fun a job as you could have. (laughs) (laughs) I can only only imagine. I think that sort of, um, you know, school of Reagan and, and then Arnold, uh, for whatever people might think positively or negatively about how they did their jobs. Wild to see how those schools of thought have brought us where we are. Um, before we get into where we are though, when, when you talk about being, disillusioned with Iraq and and we think through the last two decades uh, everything that we've seen these sort of unending wars how has that all shaped your perspective because especially now to hear about increased violence uh, in the Middle East in Afghanistan in particular and and having this incredibly explosive news about Russian bounties being placed on the heads of American and British soldiers. And as you and I are both Americans and passionate about our country, we'll, we'll focus it uh, locally here. The, the intelligence briefings that have let us know that since late February, Donald Trump has known about these bounties and has not only done nothing, imposed no sanctions on Russia, um, not even publicly criticized Russia. He's actually only been publicly defending Russia and attempting to get them readmitted into the G7. As a person who's been on the ground in the way that you have, I'm curious how that resonates with you because I've never been downrange, but I've been on a few USO tours. I have visited our men and women in uniform everywhere from Rammstein Air Force Base to Inzerlik in Turkey. I've sat at the Wounded Warrior Center with soldiers who have literally come back, you know, in the last week from injuries uh, on the battlefield and are in, are in the hospital. And, and for me, it is, it's hard for me to find the words to talk about uh, what reading those reports felt like. And I'm curious what that is for you because you've worked in the White House, because you've, you've been on presidential campaigns um, in ways that go far deeper than any of the ways which I have. And, and I, I think there's a real, vali- a, a real importance for folks like us to have conversations about this stuff because as far as the world's concerned, I'm, you know, some uber liberal progressive 
person and you come from this storied history of, in the Republican Party. And, and this seems to me to be one of the issues that shouldn't be partisan at all. And yet it's being politicized. So I wonder from your, your side of things and your, your expertise, how, how does it all feel to you? Well, it feels appalling. Um, and I don't think that my experience, I don't think that my experiences deepen or lessen in any way against yours or anybody's my sense of outrage over it. Mm-hmm. The absolute dereliction of duty and the betrayal of America's sons and daughters. And it's not just that he didn't take action, it's that he took material steps to reward mm-hmm. the Russian behavior. Um, after he was aware of it. There's nothing comparable, literally, in the modern history of the presidency. Mm-hmm. It's unimaginable that this would be the, the conduct of the president of the United States. And mm-hmm. when we think about these wars, um, what, what is certain to be true in the next year is that the first American who was born after the attacks on 9-11 will be killed somewhere in combat in the broader Middle East. And when you think about a democratic society, democratic societies are not designed to be in a state of permanent war for 20 years. And there is a pernicious effect of all of it on that democratic society. And you know, one of the things about Trump is his ubiquity. In a normal, healthy, democratic society, everything isn't politicized. Everything isn't political. Mm-hmm. There's a respite from the president. And in, in, it's in authoritarian societies when the leader is constantly in your face, constantly present, mm. constantly present. In this country, we don't want to think about the president every day. Don't want to wake up and what did he do between 2 and 5 a.m.? Um, don't want to, like a lot of Americans, be constantly inundated with all of the nonsense. And mm-hmm. so you know, we live in a time where, you know, even the wearing of a surgical mask in a pandemic where there's 130,000 people dead is the outbreak of a type of national insanity. We've seen the metastasization of this Trump movement into some type of cult of personality. Mm. Um, And you look at the combination of Trump's innate illiberalism, his authoritarian impulse, his detachment from the American idea and ideal completely, we're at a dangerous and terrible hour for this for this country. And to watch the people who know better collaborating with it is just, to me, beyond measure appalling. Just appalling. Yeah, me too. And it, to your point, it feels so, it's past strange, bizarre, immoral. To me, it feels truly insane that things have been politicized, which are so clearly apolitical, like science. You know, you you look at every other country around the world mitigating 
this coronavirus pandemic, aside from really, you know, you look at who's leading and it's the United States and Brazil. And I'm like, well, Trump and Bolsonaro are pretty similar uh, gentlemen who really want to be dictators. So maybe that's why. It's so crazy to me, be it practices around health and the pandemic, or even practices around, by the way, our water, you know, to watch Donald Trump roll back Obama-era environmental protections that stopped companies from dumping toxic waste in the rivers and go, it's a victory for us. I'm like, hello? I don't care if you are a Democrat, a Republican, a a libertarian, or someone who doesn't want to talk politics at all. Clean water matters to you. I don't know how it's a political victory to poison your own constituents uh, just because a guy who you look at as being on the other team you were able to to roll back, quote unquote, his rules. You know, it's it's rules for us. And there seems to be this, this missing piece of how we prioritize the nation as a standard and then figure out as a point of debate who might have the better policy. I, I, I think back to very early in my career, I, I had a boss who said to me, I I was really impressed by the way he ran a set. And I said, you know, how do you do that? There's a thing you do here that's different than a lot of other directors. When you think about it, a director is a little bit like the president of of a TV set. And he said, you know, kid, on my set, the best idea always wins. And he said, if that's your idea, my idea, the camera operator's idea, I don't care whose idea it is, the best idea has to win. And that's the kind of political culture I'd like to see. And yet here we are in these, in these moments of insanity where, to your point, mask wearing now is being touted as an infringement on rights. And I saw this brilliant Medium article the other day, a journalist wrote and said, no one's ever said no shirt, no shoes, no service at a restaurant is an infringement on your rights. Right. It's about sanitation. Right. And so I've, I'm, I'm dumbfounded for sure. And I'm curious, have you spoken to President Bush or former Governor Schwarzenegger about any of what's going on? You know, are, are, are those folks talking about how to bring their sides of the team to, to the table to try to restore a little sanity here? Well, I think that, let, let me say, you know, the, you know, the, when you when you talk about somebody who is directing a movie, right? There are capable directors and there are incompetent directors, mm-hmm. um, you know, for sure. And I'm sure there are people who just don't have the capacity to be able to manage the budget, maintain a schedule, to create the project. And they typically, I would imagine, aren't rewarded with the next movie, right? They're not going to get another deal, and so. Right. You know, the problem, you know, that we see now is we have just this enormous competency gap. When you look at the governor of Texas, when you look at the governor of Florida, mm. you know, Florida accounted for 8% of the world's new coronavirus cases uh, yesterday morning. We are in a period where our politics has been consumed by a mix of completely principleless people. Mm. cowardice is a chief virtue among them. Mm. And 
incompetent, crazy. So when Betsy DeVos, prime example, she's in the news talking about yesterday, and this is, this is a person whose only qualification in life is marrying into money. That's why she's a cabinet secretary, right? She has, she has no material achievement in her life, no particular expertise. She's an ideological nutcase who becomes the cabinet secretary, secretary of education, and says on TV that, well, we'll only lose 0.2% of America's kids if we send them back to school, which is 15,000 dead kids um, for the fall semester. And you just look at all of this across is that there's, we're, we're in the consequences stage, right, of the, of the Trump mm-hmm. presidency. And there was a real lack of imagination um, for the type of tragedy that, that he could cause. And if you think about it in your, you know, in your own life, and I, I look back, you think about someone who's had a drink or two too much and then drives home. And, and a lot of people have done it and not had any consequence. Um, but what if you do it every day, every day for a week? What about every day for a month? Mm. How about you drink and drive every day for a year, two years, three years? We made it, we made it slightly over three years with him as president until we had a real catastrophe in the country. And I think when you look at the things, you know, both President Bush and President Obama have said, and President Obama more directly, um, President Bush is, is his style more obliquely. Um, they've registered their strong disapproval, right. you know, with this with this administration and this president, and you know, and certainly Arnold Schwarzenegger has been you know, really outspoken about it as well. I guess what strikes me though is a bit crazy, and I've said this for a long time. You know, look. My my analogy for politics has been I need for the I need the Democrats to get their shit together because the Republicans keep bringing an Uzi to a knife fight. Like there there are there are crazy things that we've seen happening with politicization, misinformation, and and I feel a little bit like that watching former presidents, watching John Bolton, even watching Robert Mueller, you know, people like us who understand politics and who've worked in it knew when Robert Mueller said, I would have cleared the president if I could have, when he teed up the investigation to go into the Senate and for those people to uncover over 400 incidents of criminal behavior by the president in his report, I don't think he was assuming that the report would be released so substantially redacted and that, you know, Bill Barr would be, by the way, another traitor to America and claim that Trump had done nothing wrong. Uh, nobody expects this because it's so far outside the norms. You know, we, we see the way that parties have kind of swatted at each other before. And this is like a whole other situation. And I guess it's there that I wonder or I suppose it's there that I understand why there is a decorum that comes from these these people we're referencing, whether it's a Bolton yeah. or an Obama or a, a George W. Bush. But Trump has no decorum. 
He has no. no moral core. So he's willing to stoop so low. He's willing to get people to go out there and lie for him. You, you see the way that, that everyone from Mitch McConnell to, to Bill Barr are behaving out there in the world. And, and it's creating such a crazy climate of disinformation and, and a total disregard for truth. I mean, again, in, in terms of who we are or who we are supposed to be, when that protest was happening in Lafayette Square outside of the White House and Trump ordered that park cleared and rubber bullets were shot into the crowd and the crowd was tear gassed, which is a direct violation of the Geneva Conventions, which we, we signed on to in the 1940s. I mean, I was apoplectic about it. And I literally had people, Steve, responding to me on social media saying that didn't happen. And I'm going, there's video, guys. What are you talking about? It didn't happen. How have we gotten to a place where we are living in truly Orwellian times where Trump says, don't believe what you see on TV, don't believe anybody unless it's me, and people are falling for it. Coming from the spaces you come from and having worked for the people you've worked for, how do you think we combat that? Because that feels, I don't know how you fight Uzi level crazy with like a little knife of truth. I don't, I don't know how we do this. So I'm curious if, if you have thoughts. Well, the truth and the lie are in combat in a way that we've never seen before in the history of the country mm-hmm. in this moment in time. And it is one of the great threats that the country's ever faced mm-hmm. and right to mention Orwell. And if you, Go to the end of 1984, where Winston is being interrogated by the party official. The party official holds up four fingers and says to Winston, how many fingers am I holding up? And Winston says, I only see four. And the party official says, but it could be five or it could be three. The answer is, is what the party tells you. And so Trump's lies or by a different order of magnitude divergent from typical politician lies. So, you know, politics is a strange business as a candidate because most normal people don't go around talking about themselves in superlatives. You wouldn't want to be around a person who constantly talks about how superior they are, smart, talented, why they should be advanced into this. And so, You see a typical politician lie, for example, is one of puffery. I was on the plane that was a little bit closer to harm's way in the combat zone than it actually was. Or I didn't have sex with that woman, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, lies to avoid embarrassment. Trumps are materially different. They're lies Mm -hmm. of authority, right? And a, a lie of authority which began literally day one with the crowd size, demands of a supporter that they surrender their intellectual agency, that they refute what they've seen with their own eyes because what's true is what the leader says is true, even though it's obviously not not so. And so when you think about lying 20,000 times, 30,000 times in a, in a democracy, Mm. It's the lie of authority, 
but it's also intentional to make people fear the liar and not the lie. And so if you think about the two great 20th century threats that the country faced, fascism in the 1930s and 1940s and communism throughout the, throughout the Cold War, mm. those systems were built foundationally on lies. And our system is predicated on truths, inalienable truths, as an ideal that all of us are created equal, endowed with inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the American system of government, which imperfectly springs from the values of the Enlightenment in the 18th, in the 18th century, is foundationally built on truths. But if you obliterate the line between truth and the lie, and more importantly, distinguish any ability to discern the difference between the two, i.e. Facebook, then you've created what could be a lethal threat for people to have the capacity to govern themselves. And you look at where we are as a country, how are we doing as a nation governing ourselves right now? And the answer is we've gone full banana republic in this country. We're the epicenter of coronavirus death and infection. We're the most scientifically advanced country in the world. But there is a cult of personality that has become empowered politically that's somewhere between 30 to 40% of the country that's imposing insanity on a majority of the country. And that's at the heart of what this election is going to be about in November. So I have a question about that. Because when we talk about lack of regulation, lack of a requirement to tell the truth, you know, you referenced Facebook and the absolute nightmare that disinformation is on the platform, Mark Zuckerberg's refusal to do anything about it. Um, the, the true danger of utter lies and nonsense that look like news reports on a platform like that. But I am curious, you know, looking back in hindsight, do you wish more people in the Bush-Cheney White House had raised alarms about, and I, and I know that this was sort of, you know, Dick Cheney's baby that he, he shepherded through in his time there, his removal of legal requirement for the news to be presented in unbiased manners so that they could really pave the way for Rupert Murdoch to launch Fox News. And now you see Fox News having to go to court, uh, you know, being charged with some of the, being charged for some of the insane things that they do, defending themselves by saying, we're not a, we're not a sober news program. We are, we are an entertainment program. You see um, representatives for people like Tucker Carlson saying, or, or Bill O'Reilly saying, uh, you know, we trust that the American people are intelligent enough to know the difference between actual news and opinion commentary. And I wonder if, having been so close in that space, when I, when I think about it, I wonder, you know, do, do you all look back and go, oh, my God, if we'd known what the ramifications could have been, would we have paid more attention to this or, or, or raised 
the alarms about this because the removal of that requirement. I think what you're talking about, I think what you're talking about is the fairness doctrine, which predates the Bush-Cheney administration, whenever that right. might have been in the 1980s, that that requirement went away. But look, the, the media world is just different in not returning to what it was. It's disaggregated. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lincoln Project, which I'm involved in, we accumulated over a billion views in the yeah. month of June. And the Lincoln Project is incredible. So, Thank you for so, what you guys are doing. And so, the, you, you, well, thank you. <laughs> um, we, when you when you look at Fox News, I mean, you know, Fox is materially different as an organization over these four years mm-hmm. than it was over the preceding eight years of Obama, uh, and materially different than it was over the Bush Cheney years or going back to its origin point. I mean the level of misinformation and, and conspiracy theories and insanity that comes off of the network over the Trump years is just unbelievable to behold. It's a, it's mm-hmm. an absolutely pernicious force in the country. And you can literally um, track your li- likelihood of, of, of dying from coronavirus, you know, by odds on what box show you're, watching, you know, mm-hmm. religiously. And so it's a, it's just a crazy, it's a crazy period, but you know, it's Fox functions really as a propaganda network, mm-hmm. you know, for, for Trump. Um, it's not so different than RT or any of the Russian state media, but exactly. you know, it is Fox news is what American state media looks like in service to a profoundly dishonest charlatan sitting in the white house. Yeah, it feels almost like a driving force of a dictatorship. And and I'm curious, you know, I'm in in researching and reading up on some pieces for this. You, you said earlier this year you were talking about Sarah Palin, and and you made reference to the fact that in in the way that she really loved the spotlight, she figured out how to tap into the grievances of people in the country, people who felt that they'd been forgotten. Um, she really puffed up those sorts of stories and and was able to, through aggrandizement, telling lies, spreading misinformation, um, really rile those folks up. Do you, do you see through lines with her and Trump? Do you think that, that it was a bit of her behavior in, in that race that Trump learned from? Or, or do you think it's perhaps a, a combination of that and and the, the particular skill set that being on reality TV and being inflammatory right. gave him. I think Trump is Trump, right? He's always mm-hmm. been Trump, right? He's a, he's a constant. I, as someone who grew up, we were talking about in New Jersey, I mean, his, he's been a presence in my frontal lobe, right, since I was eight years old, right? He's just right. been a ubiquitous part of the, of the culture. And I don't – so there, there's nothing – that anyone else has done, right, that has made Trump any more or less Trump, right? It's, he is what he is. Um, I, I think the through line on, on Sarah Palin is this. I didn't have any idea until three days after she was picked that she couldn't find Iraq on a map. Wow. And I was deeply unhappy about it, to say the least. Um, that being said, the behavior that we saw from her, 
Nicole Wallace and I were just really the first two people to see it. And then everyone on the campaign saw it. And by the time we got to the election, everybody in the country saw it. And so you look at Sarah Palin when the election was over and Barack Obama had won, you had all these erstwhile conservative commentators and others who obviously, and in private conversations, believed she was unfit. The only rational position, in my view, is after looking at her performance in that campaign to say, wow, what a mistake this was, and this person should never be near high political office in the, in the country. But instead, what happened is you had all these Fox commentators where she had a million-dollar-a-year contract. She was never asked a serious question to determine if, in fact, she was the victim of some grand conspiracy, right? The question about whether she knew anything, right, could spell bin Laden, went unanswered on Fox News. I mean, she was literally, the year she was there, was never asked a serious question. You had all these national Republican figures who were terrified of her, of her Facebook account. And the through line is the same people who were afraid of her Facebook page became the same people terrified of being tweeted at by Trump or having a presidential nickname bestowed on them. And, and the reality, I think, is our politics is we have a tremendous crisis of cowardice in the country. Mm-hmm. And no one is, act, is asking any of our political leaders to storm Omaha Beach. Um, so when I, when I look at what Palin is, is she represents this moment of time for the first time where belief in the obvious was suspended where someone who was so clearly unfit was heralded not just as fit, but in fact, the future of the party. And you look at, you look at the, and a lot of this stuff, by the way, right, is explicable. I mean, 40% of the country doesn't have $400 of savings. Mm-hmm. We're going to have 50,000 Americans disproportionately in that socioeconomic class are going to die of opioid overdoses in the next 10 years. We see in the bottom economically 40% of the country, just as was the case at the fall of the Soviet Union, we see declining life expectancies for white men at age mm-hmm. 50 years old, first time in the history of the country, rising maternal labor death rates. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are huge issues, deep grievances, um, and people, everybody wants to be seen and be heard, right? Everyone wants to be visible. You know, Franklin Roosevelt talked about this in, in his campaigns in the thirties, he talked about the forgotten man. And there were a lot of people in the country in flyover country who feel that they're disdained by their political leaders, don't like, didn't like being called deplorables, and they saw themselves being seen and respected by Trump. Mm-hmm. And the, those voters um, are going to decide this next election and you know, need them back, need them back on the reservation need them back with with Joe Biden and a good person. And when you look at Trump's numbers right now, he's bleeding out politically. Um, And he's bleeding out specifically on two issues. He's bleeding out on the racism and he's bleeding out on the COVID response. And his numbers now 
are in the 30s. I'll always believe there's an undercount of the Trump of the Trump vote. But but with 113 days left, you know, Donald Donald Trump is well on his way to being a one term president. here. Now, I am curious about that because because you referenced some of those things. And again, how we got to a point where science versus anti-science folks could be weighted equally feels crazy to me. And how we could get to a point where, you know, nuance and critical thinking could be weighted differently has felt crazy to me. Something that bothered me so much about the, the Republican machine in the last election was the the clear drumming up of anger in a place where it, at least as an observer, didn't feel deserved. Um, Trump has such a disdain for poor people. He has such disdain uh, for anyone who isn't wildly wealthy. And, and I always thought it was a crazy thing that the the Democratic Party in his election got branded as the elites. Uh, I remember someone saying to me during the campaign, well, you know, you're, you're a Democratic elitist. Of course you want to vote. And I was like, what I'm actually voting for is to raise my own taxes to make sure kids in my neighborhood have school lunch. I'm, I'm, I'm confused about how the big billionaire corporate guys who all vote Republicans so they can have a tax cut aren't rightfully called the actual American elite. Um, so that is, is an example of it. The mask wearing is another one, right? How it's called political when really we're just talking about science. You know, we're talking about particles, coughs, things that should apply to everyone. And it was wild to me that that, that comment of Hillary Clinton's got so, again, personal opinion blown out of proportion because Hillary Clinton said sexism, misogyny, racism, those are those things are deplorable. Those things that he's lauding, you know, when 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 a presidential candidate can say he grabs women by the pussy and people can cheer, and and he can say that you know Mexicans are rapists and people cheer, I agree with her that that's deplorable, and sure. I was so shocked that the explanation she gave for these traits are deplorable was always left out. And it was somehow translated into she's calling everyone in as you as you called them um, flyover states, deplorable. And it's like no, she's not. It again feels to me that we're not playing on an even playing field. And and I'm curious as you talk about your work with the Lincoln Project, as you talk about your work with um, the gentleman who was who you went to Delaware with, who uh, what was his David name again? Uh, Sorry, David. David. So someone like Dave, you know, you guys are running uh, programs together, you know, true unity across party line programming. How do you think we get back there? How do you think we get to a point where we can be sane enough to listen to what people are actually saying and be, be a little more willing to take critical analysis of of what's in front of us. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I, I think that, you know, one of the things we can talk about science, right. And I don't, I don't think this is a, it's not a Republican thing or a conservative thing necessarily. I think there's, you know, you can find this on the fringe left too, is the anti-vaccine people. Right. And so, 
you know, we're, our next challenge in this is where we'll find a vaccine ultimately for coronavirus, but it may be that you can't get the herd immunity that comes from successful vaccinations because mm-hmm. people won't take the vaccine. Um, and the country has collectively gone off the, gone off the deep end. And we didn't get into any of this overnight. Maybe we were all collectively like that frog in the, in the pot unaware of the water starting to boil. But I think that when we look at the totality of all of the challenges in the country, so for example, there's really no substantive argument that you could make, right, that the Republican Party is the more fiscally responsible of the two political parties. But even if you were to you know, humor me and we were to have that, we were to have that debate and say it was, I don't know what a limited government party looks like in a month where the federal government spent three and a half trillion dollars, right? On our way to $30 trillion in debt. And all of the debates we're having in this country are derivative of the same debates we've been having since the 1980s that are just not relevant to the world we live in at all anymore. And so the fundamental question in this moment in time is around, to me anyway, the precipitous decline of the standing of the country. I mean, we are in three and a half short years at a, at a moment of, of American weakness that is just before this completely unimaginable. Mm-hmm. And so you can go through a hundred different issues that have all been stripped bare. One of the things, right, that's clear from coronavirus is nothing works, right? None of this stuff works, right? That's from, you know, government's ability to deliver a service competently is, is non-existent. Um, we see a political class that is self-interested, corrupt, completely out to launch. I I do know the first thing we have to do is Donald Trump has to be removed from power. We have no chance, zero, of being, being able to recover from any of this as a country until he is gone. Full stop. The, the corruption, the illiberalism, his betrayal of America's ideas and ideals, the fraying of our alliances, all of it. Mm. And all of it is taking place at a really interesting moment in time, a hinge of history, if you will. When Franklin Roosevelt was president, he would frequently have Mackenzie King, the Canadian prime minister, to the White House. They were friends and King was a confidant, and as FDR was sitting with him in 1943, he was architecting his vision for what the post-World War era would look like. And he talked about how the colonial powers would yield to independence movements. He talked about the United Nations. He talked about a U.S.-led liberal global order that would emerge from the war and how to secure the peace. And what Roosevelt said to King was that he had no ambition that his vision would endure forever. He just wanted it to last for as long as everybody who was alive on the day the war was won was still alive. 
If you mm-hmm. think about that, we're about there. We're, we're, we're at the end of the long human lifespans of the people who survived the death camps. We're at the end of the long lifespans of the men who stormed the beaches. We are at the end of the American century that began in you know, 19, 1945. And what comes next, I, I, don't, I don't know. But we are in a really dangerous hour where so many of our institutions and our systems have turned out to be so much more fragile than any of us could have imagined them to be. And so it starts with replacing a bad man for a good man, a mean man for a kind man, an indecent man for a decent one, a immoral man for a moral one, a man who is laughed at by every world leader for a man who is respected as a statesman by those same world leaders. We need to upgrade the, the office and the job. And I, and I think about Joe Biden in his context, which is, which is true about the country, is that almost providentially, the, the country has produced the right leaders in the right moments. Rosa Parks, just a woman coming home on a bus who was tired, who becomes an icon of the civil rights movement and inspires a young preacher from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Dwight Eisenhower is a lieutenant colonel in the Army in 1938, hasn't been promoted in 14 years. Um, Harry Truman, an underestimated, plain-spoken Senator from Missouri who goes on to become one of the giants in the, in the history of the country. The, the worst president in American history before Trump was Buchanan, who we don't remember so much because he was followed by the greatest president, Lincoln. And so when you think about Biden, he is at the precipice of achieving his destiny. At 77 years old, he is being raised up by the nation to be our next president Mm -hmm. and to lead us out of this terrible era. Mm -hmm. And it is a terrible, terrible era. And the work of renewal um, will take a long time. And we're going to need to find our way to to a better politics in this country because, as Lincoln pointed out, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Right. If the country continues to exist in a state of cold civil war, then we're going to have profound and terrible problems. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, there's there's reason to be optimistic when you look at, you know, some of the movements that are taking place, peaceful, nonviolent movements, you know, where people of all races and, and colors and creeds are basically saying enough, right, that yeah. And we've reached the hour that this American idea and ideals for everybody and are demanding that that final mile of the civil rights movement be, be completed on our watch. And that's the work of America. Indeed. And I think that that's so important because to your point, we can look at the legacy of Lincoln and say he was one of our greatest presidents. And we can also see the true downfall of, of the missing of our ideals in the recorded ways that he spoke about black people. 
We can even, to your point, look at a man like Joe Biden, who you're right, is decent, who is moral, who, you know, I think about his time in office and and being the vice president to President Obama. Joe said he's going to make college campus sexual assault his big issue. And he launched It's On Us to literally get young men taking responsibility for the way they treat young women. And, and even now in the way that he says, oh yeah, when we look back at the crime bill or we look back at these things, we made mistakes. And he talks about what he's learned throughout his career. The difference between when you come into a political system and you meet it where it is, and then you look at where our ideals have always been, the, the loftiness of them, the, the reaching them as a goal. And what I want in any kind of a leader is to say, this is where I've been human, and this is where I want us to go. This is what I know more about now than I knew two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We're going to take every success and failure and be honest about them all to move us forward. That gives me hope when people are willing to never give up on achieving the dream, even when they have to own their mistakes. That's human. That's a space where we can apply our critical thinking ability to, to always be better tomorrow than we were yesterday. And, and it's why, you know, not to be redundant, but I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate how outspoken you have been. You know, when, when you made that announcement in 2018 that after 29 years you were leaving the Republican Party because it was, it's not a party anymore. It's, it's a Trump cult. I, I was so taken aback by it and grateful that you would step out, you know, into a spotlight in that way and say the things that needed to be said. I'm grateful that recently you, you tweeted, um, I want to read you this. Well, I want to read the audience this, uh, the folks listening at home, but you, you tweeted, we reject completely that U.S. senators are Trump hostages. These are some of the highest elected officials in the country. They had the power to check this disaster. Instead, they fueled it with their cowardice, complicity, and silence. It has been disgraceful. And I was like slow clapping behind the computer reading your tweet. And, and so when you talk about how critical it is for us to remove him from office, to, to right the ship of American progress, do, do you also want people who are listening at home to be as passionate about their Senate races, their congressional yes, races, their local I do. elections? Vote them out. Hmm. Get them out. You know, I think about I think about Ted Cruz on this American Airlines flight, and I just like I've reached the age maybe like I got too much grumpy dad in me, right? You know, and it's like with a 14, 15 year old boy who doesn't want to wear the mask. It's like put on your fucking mask. No one likes to wear the mask. The mask sucks, right? But wear the mask. You have to wear the mask. And see a United States senator. His obvious smugness, his mm. sense of entitlement, the arrogance of it, just the plain old-fashioned stupidity of it. It's just so offensive. And you have all of these principalist men and women who have completely abdicated their responsibility, their duty, their constitutional oaths, who could have put a check on this, who could have mm. constrained and contained Trump. And look what we have. And we will have... By the time we get to the election, we're going to have 200,000 dead Americans. 
by the time we get to New Year's Eve, and I can't even, I was, I was, you know, thinking the other day, I mean, I can't imagine the friggin' joy that will, that will, that will, that people will feel when the ball comes down and this wretched year is over. Yeah. Right. But by the time we get to that point, we're going to be at 300,000 dead Americans. And, you know, we're going to, we had 400,000 people killed in the second world war, right? It's, it's an astounding number, right? You can't, you can't, we have been at war for 20 years because mm-hmm. 3000 of us were killed in lower Manhattan mm-hmm. in a field in Pennsylvania and, and at the Pentagon and the magnitude of all of this. And it did not have to be. And to something that you said earlier that I, that I do think is an interesting aspect of all of this, all, all of the countries without exception that have handled coronavirus really well all have women leaders, every one of them. Mm-hmm. Every country on the disaster list has got their version of a Trump yeah. as, the, as the leader, whether it's, in, whether it's in Brazil, you know, with the, with the one exception of a Trump-like guy who's actually done his job is is the premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, who's handled this really responsibly in in Canada. But but aside from that, um, wherever you look in the world, where you ha- you have a Trump-type character, you just you just see a disaster, and and it is a and it is a disaster. I mean, we have forty million people out of work in this in this country. Um, when you look at the second wave now that's coming to understand that everything we did over March and April, like it, it was all for nothing, nothing. for nothing, nothing. Well, um, and that we lacked the national will to be able to, to deal with something like this is a really is a tragic moment. And for people who are listening, you know, it's been very interesting. I've, I've seen some and again, it's not a lot, but I always feel like the you know how it is. Crazy and the haters are the loudest for me in, in my own space is talking about what a dereliction of duty this has been and, and the insane contrast in response. You know, two Americans died of Ebola and Republicans in Congress were calling for Obama to resign. And now 150, over 150,000 Americans has died of coronavirus and they're silent, which feels like such, again, a dereliction of duty on the part of any elected official it is the responsibility of the president to manage a pandemic. It just is. For sure. What do you say to people who say, well, what was the president supposed to do about this? How, well, how, what, in what way do we shake those people by the shoulders and make them see that these deaths do squarely sit on Trump's shoulders? The, the president received intelligence briefings on this going back to January. There was this event that took place in the White House over the last month or so where there were people talking about how they've been impacted in their small businesses. And he sat there detached and bored like a young teenager on their phone, you know, looking at TikTok videos, mm-hmm. just completely vacant and checked out. But for sure, right, that, that's how he receives his intelligence briefings. He, th- there's been stories about this. Mm-hmm. He refuses to read. He will not read one page of information. He can't process it. He won't. So the briefers talk about the elaborate preparations and rituals they go through to try to present information to him. He just, he won't, he won't receive it. We're living, the, the world's 
leading infectious disease expert is Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. Trump has not seen him since June 2nd. The White House is disseminating opposition research, trying to discredit Fauci because the president is upset about how much more trusted Fauci is and how much higher his approval numbers are. It's just complete and total insanity. So you look at the Tulsa rally, and I have a theory. I don't know if it's true, but I believe this is true. I don't think that there are any more crazy people running around than there used to be. I think that 30% of the country has always been crazy and always will be. Right. I mean, not for nothing. The Tiger King got 26 percent of the vote in the in the Oklahoma primary. Right. So you're always going to have that. The difference is. That all the crazy people are connected together on social media, which amplifies their voices. Right. And they're an actual constituency. So you go to the Tulsa rally and you watch that. Right. And you, you see all these people, none of them wearing masks in there in this covid incubator, Mm. yelling and screaming. And Trump gets up there and he talks for 30 minutes about walking down the ramp at West Point. Right. And then he talks for another 15 minutes about him drinking water, which we had made fun of him on a video on on the Lincoln Project when he had the two hands up and doing it. And the people are yelling and screaming and going nuts. And when I was watching that, said that I, I, I mean this so deeply. I don't wish any of those people ill at all. Like I, I want them to be happy, successful, yep. safe, but I don't want their politics imposed on me or the country right. because they're obviously batshit crazy. And we can't let the batshit crazy part of the population rule over a majority of the country. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened. Over these over these last couple of years, mm. is that in our system, the electoral college, not only can the person win who gets fewer votes, but a person can assemble an electoral college majority at about forty-five to forty-six percent of the vote, and then rule from a majoritarian rule in a majoritarian way with domination over the rest of the country. And that, that's not healthy. Are, um, you, and are you hoping to see the Electoral College be abolished? No, no. Interesting. Mm-mm. I don't think we'll, you know, I, I think like at the end of the day, it's, you know, when people talk about this, I mean, it's just a fun- function of our country, right? The federal government didn't make the states. The states created the federal government. And so in our system, so the big population states don't, you know, don't decide every presidential election, you know, the states have to have a say or smaller states will never see a presidential candidate show up there. But, you know, the the reality is, is you look at this election right now, if it was tomorrow, Joe Biden's going to win Texas, Joe Biden's going to win Florida. So I think this is going to be a really interesting election as we see the consequences, you know, particularly in states like Florida and Texas, you know, with the, you know, with the governors. And I, and I suspect that 
you know, you're going to, it's sad, but ultimately enough people are going to die and everyone's going to know someone who died that this is going to become very real for everybody. And mm-hmm. I think there'll be a political consequence for that. Well, I hope there's some sort of consequence for such a, an irresponsible series of events that have taken quite literally taken American lives for granted, uh, both here and abroad. What a time. I, I have one more question for you and it is my yes. favorite question to ask everyone. I'm going to have so many more questions for you, but I know you have a heart out. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, I, I'm glad to hear you feel hopeful and, and I do too, very, very cautiously, but I'm curious in general for you, as you know, the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I wonder as, as you look at life right now, what feels like a work in progress in your life, whether it's something personal, professional, political even? I think that, I just think that this is such a before and after moment in life. And I'm not sure that I completely have my head wrapped around it at all yet. You know, my, my life is profoundly different. You know, I was someone who was flying 300,000 miles a year, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, it's just, you know, profoundly different. And, um, you know, it makes you, I think it makes you, take stock of everything, of your relationships. It it forces you to understand how life is, is unpredictable and to be, to be grateful. I mean, I think it's Mm -hmm. easy to say, you know, I'm a grateful person or, you know, I'm going to do a better job of practicing gratitude and, you know, but that's like my work in progress is that, you know, you're not, none of us are really in control of as much as we like to think we are. And, mm-hmm. and this whole episode points, points it out. Yeah. So for people to begin to resume some semblance of control, some, some stake in the ground, do you think voting is, one of the most important things we can do? Absolutely. I, I mean, look, you know, Winston Churchill had a quote, and it, it was that in a democracy, we get the government we deserve. Mm. And my, my faith in the country and, and frankly in human beings is such that we don't deserve this. This, is, this has been an anomaly, and I don't think the country's going to ratify this. I don't think the country's going to sign up you know, for four more years of this guy's destruction. If it, if it does, then it will, in my mind, it will be, it will be true. It will be an unspeakable, unspeakable tragedy. You know, should that, you know, should that happen? And so, you know, these are years, you know, to me that are just filled with loss. Um, Mm and division and anger and meanness and all of the pathologies that he's injected into the body politic. Mm-hmm. They, they got to be captured and, and 
put back in that bottle and sealed deep underground in a Chernobyl-like concrete, you know, coffin. I mean, it's it's the racism, the the anti-Semitism, the all of this that 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 this guy has has let loose has weaponized mainstreamed and you and you see it all over the all over the country on the mass stuff where people going nuts in grocery stores and in restaurants and this is this is they they feel emboldened to be able to do that for for one reason and one reason only and and, and that guy's name is Donald Trump well i'm uh I'm grateful for the work you're doing and thank you and everyone at the Lincoln Project for the kind of clarity of vision and the and the content that you're providing people with because so many people don't have access to have a conversation with you for an hour or speak to people who've worked in various White Houses and I really do believe that getting clear on the truth of what this country not only is, but can be, is, is something that could really affect change. So thank you for all of that. And, and please know that anytime, you know, you need a, a signal boost or anything, I'm, I'm around. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.